Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rulemakers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Mega events, the ongoing theme all through the spring and certainly after the Super Bowl, NHL, NBA All-Star. We have big-time golf tournaments. We have opening a baseball season coming. Speaking of baseball, we have the World Baseball Classic. We'll talk about that. There are really important themes about what the economics are concerning these big events. Amy Tenery uh, has some interesting perspective on the World Baseball Classic. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? Well, I'm fine. World Baseball Classic first round was in Korea, Miami, Guadalajara, and Tokyo. We sent you and dispatched our crack person to Tokyo to be at the World Baseball Classic. What are your perceptions? Yeah, well, I, I technically I built it into a little bit of a vacation for myself. But if uh, yeah, if you want to if you want to say that I was working, sure, I'll take it. Um, yeah. No, I had a I had a great time. I actually you know it was my first time seeing a baseball game abroad, and you know it's. Exciting this year because this is the first time that America has actually clinched the the title. They they won last night, and uh, I got to see Japan versus Israel. It was an awesome game. Japan actually holds the, you know the most titles, so it was great to see that level of play. Also, just how rabid the fandom is there. Uh, it, I went to the Tokyo Dome, which is where they held it. It was a packed crowd. Uh, you know, I was with my husband at one point. He turned to me and he said, "I wish baseball games were like this in the U.S. because there was not an empty seat." And everyone was just absolutely cheering and screaming. And it was probably one of the most exciting games I've ever been to. So it was absolutely terrific. And I think, you know, given the fact that in a lot of ways, the World Baseball Classic still feels a little bit experimental. You know, it was not it was founded not entirely to fill the void left by, uh, you know, the removal of baseball from the Olympics, but in part. So it it feels like still a bit of of an experiment, but just being there in person, I I had a lot of optimism for, um, you know, the future of the tournament. I think it's I think it's terrific. And I I think it's the kind of thing that we need to see going forward for the league to draw in international interest, draw in international players. And, you know, how exciting for the U.S. to actually, you know, win a title this year. Well, and and the bottom line as well is Major League Baseball continually wanting to uh, grow the sport, and and the way to do it is to grow it globally. Mm -hmm. We understand how rabid Japanese fans are, but the games in South Korea were as significant. Mexico, obviously, as well. The Olympics certainly helps with it coming back, which I think is important. And, you know, as you said, Japan wins back-to-back in 2006 and 2009. Now they do not win again because America wins. Mm -hmm. It certainly beats the humdrum of spring training as far as getting prepared for regular season, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And, you know, I got to say, with all of the NFL's sort of 
push toward moving the game internationally with, you know, a, a game in London here, a game in Mexico City there. This, to me, is just so much more impactful toward growing the sport internationally. If I'm Roger Goodell, I'm probably green with envy because it's it, it, it feels much more organic. I think the international teams are just as competitive as the United States, even though baseball sort of considered, you know, the uh, America's pastime or I guess maybe football's overtaken it. Uh, but I, I think it's absolutely important. And, and you're right that it, it does kind of fill a void. Spring training, not exactly a nail biter. Preseason games, also not exactly a nail biter. So this, I think it gets fans excited about baseball prior to the regular season. And it, it, it kind of fills a little bit of a vacancy in the sports schedule now that we're kind of over our Super Bowl hangover. So I, it's great. Well, and from a mega event perspective and the economics and the business of baseball, 50 other sponsors besides Geico being the presenting sponsor from 15 countries across five continents involved in the event as well. And obviously, it's a big deal for the economics of baseball also. Let's turn to another big deal, and it's a big deal domestically. International uh, folks, you just got to suck it up and understand that Americans are obsessed when it comes with March Madness. March Madness is is an event that uh, has captured the imagination, and all you need to know is that there's a, another $8 billion extension of the current TV deals through 2032. There's certainly stability there. $1.2 billion of national ad spend last year according to Cantor Media, and you got companies like General Motors spending $93 million, TNT 80, Coca-Cola 47, Volkswagen nearly 40, because they activate, because they've got all of these different platforms, and I think this is a true business that is now started on TV and evolving into digital. What do you think? Yeah, I think so, too. I think it's absolutely a booming business. We're seeing ratings climbing year over year, uh, and this despite the fact that, and I don't want to compare apples to oranges because, you know, March Madness is obviously a, a totally different thing, but if you compare it to the declining ratings of the NFL, it certainly puts things in perspective. I do think it's going to put some pressure on the NCAA. Like you said, it's a business. It's a bit awkward, I think, for them, especially in a lot of the, the controversy over you know, should players be compensated? Is this a a pure academic league or is this, like you said, a, a business? So I think that the, the bigger it grows, the bigger it gets, the, the more pressure it's going to put on the NCAA to kind of justify, you know, how the players are treated, whether or not they're compensated. I don't know. I It just seems to me like the bigger it gets, the, the more pressure it's going to face. Well, but also... I wouldn't mind the pressure of dividing a larger pot of money because there's more to go around. And and, and I think that's one of the things that everybody's focusing on. And as you said, the numbers continue to trend upward, about a 5% increase Mm -hmm. uh, from uh, last year's opening round games. Now, there's that normal study that's coming out every year that says that you lose about $4 billion of lost productivity. And what they do is they take the number of hours <laughs> that people are sneaking around their desks watching the computers. Truth be told, were you there for that Thursday and Friday at Reuters? And how many people were sneaking there? Well, you, you guys are not really sports savvy in that department. You are, but everybody else isn't. Did you see people sneaking around I, instead of working, watching the game? I'm the token sports person. Uh, no, actually, I was still in Japan at the time, uh, but I was glued to my app um, just watching the scores. I, I forget who it was at one point had kind of floated the idea that 
just the first day of, of March Madness should just be like a national holiday. Just say, forget it. You know, no one's getting anything done anyway. You see the same thing with the World Cup every four years. It's, I mean, it's March Madness. It's the best. Everyone loves it. <laughs> yeah, that listen, that's all you need to say. It's March Madness and people who understand it certainly get it. But the, the other piece of this from a business perspective I find interesting is that the ratings continue to go up. The digital dollar uh, numbers continue to amazingly increase, but it almost doesn't matter because Nielsen sports fan Trender did a survey and said that the average fan who's watching these games is between 25 and 54, which is the sweet spot of advertisers. Mm -hmm. Nearly half hold a bachelor's or master's or doctorate. And when you look at those numbers, it's almost irrelevant to corporations, the number of people who watch, kind of like bowl games, the people who do watch are going to buy stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. Yeah. And I think the phenomenon of, of March Madness brackets is certainly driving that upward. Obviously, the people who went to these schools have a vested interest. But for the rest of us, I didn't, you know, I didn't go to a, a, an athletic powerhouse school. But I, I care because, you know, everybody has a bracket. And I think without brackets, you, you would not see March Madness phenomenon the way it is right now. Uh, and I think that it's it's allowed sort of a, a sneaky way for brands to latch on to what is kind of like gambling light. You know, people sort of gamble among friends. It's not Vegas gambling, but the brackets are, are I think, a big part of that. They, they drive that interest. They drive that rabid fandom for the tournament. All right. Next, Indian Wells, tennis generally. We talk mega events, an amazing event that just happened We'll talk about that in a few minutes with the guy that ran it. But the about 500, 438,000 fans or more passed through the gates of Indian Wells, Larry Ellison's Indian Wells Tennis Garden. It's a major event in the tennis season. Now, as we're taping this, the scene shifts to Miami for a tournament where their facility is in question. But the state of tennis is keyed around the majors and also two big events here in the United States. Where do you think the business of tennis is going broadly, um, you know, as, as somebody who hadn't studied it much but has a gut feeling about it? I mean, I think tennis is, is on the upswing, and I think this sort of focus on, you know, amenities is certainly at Indian Wells is, is in line with other trends we're seeing in stadiums across the country. I think um, people want more from from their sports watching experience, and I think certainly tennis tennis fans are in line with that trend. I think it's chock full of superstars right now, I, you know, between Serena, Federer, you know, nowhere to go but up, in my viewpoint. I don't know. What's your thought? Well, I think that's right. And Roger Federer winning in the Palm Springs area after winning the Australian Open, and the guy is, what, 63, 64 years old. It gives us uh, 30s, mid-30s, I'm mid -30s. kidding. It gives Might as all well us be old 70. geezers. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, from your perspective, certainly, but from, from mine, who uh, looks back at, at guys in their twilight of their career as heroes, this is yet another example of tennis as a superstar. But more important to the interview we have coming up, the Indian Wells Tennis Garden opening up a Wolfgang Puck, a Chop House, a Nobu. This is a facility that will be key to year-round use in Southern California. But more important, we understand that for any great mega event, you need a great facility to go along with it. Steve Birdwell has been the executive director and the tournament CEO of this event, certainly a successful event, moving into the next level as well. Steve brings the Larry Ellison world of Oracle 
and the perspective and vision of building and modernizing a facility has a lot to say about the business of tennis. Here's Steve Birdwell. This isn't about tennis, although you watch some really good tennis here. It's about business, it's about global reach, it's about marketing. Steve Birdwell, COO, Indian Wells Tennis Garden, BMP Paribas Open. Did I get that all right? You got it right. Awesome. A lot of titles. Complicated title. Complicated event. Larry Allison put this facility together, took it to the next level. So thank you for having me in your home. Thanks for coming. It's an incredible event, an incredible business of tennis. Tell us about this huge renovation. Kind of walk us through what you've done to make this kind of the definitive tennis center uh, of the free world, maybe even more. Absolutely. You know, what we've done here this last year, and it's really been about a nine or 10 month project, has transformed our center court stadium from a 15 or 16 year old stadium, second largest in tennis, to a world-class stadium with, uh, you know, we went from three concessions to 20 concessions and a Wolfgang Puck Spago restaurant. Uh, on the third floor there. Larry Allison basically says, I want to make this the best facility in the world and I want to put fans first anywhere from amazing Wi-Fi to the Spago you talked about, to the seats, to the suites. How do you take that vision and implement it to what we're seeing today? You know, it takes many, many, many hours of very talented people to make it happen. We've got an amazing group of architects, designers, and people that really know professional sports and um, just look at all your options and consider the fans and the players and the sports and try to build something that is world-class that's going to last for another decade or two. And not just another decade or two for this event, but it has to make a lot of sense year-round from a balance sheet economic perspective. So what's this place look like calendar-wise? It gives us the opportunity to expand where we haven't had it before. And from a community standpoint, we have arts festivals here, uh, car shows, that type of stuff on the grounds. But now we have the ability with the restaurant, we've got a new banquet facility, we've got a new front box club and space that we can utilize year round. And so it gives us a lot more opportunities to try to make an impact in the community here with this new facility. Let's talk impact a little bit, the Coachella Valley, always is the home to special events. Not major league franchises, but special events. Amazing music festivals, amazing golf tournaments as well. Give us a notion of what the economic impact looks like for the Valley. Well, the economic impact was over 400,000 or 400 million dollars last uh, time we took it. We're right now going through for 2017 a new economic impact study and I expect that to be significant. The thing that economic impact studies, from my perspective in the business, don't do is measure, measure awareness, measure the intangibles. If you were to have an ad agency buy media time of the number of times Indian Wells, Palm Springs area, the Valley is mentioned, you couldn't put a price tag on that, could you? No, no, absolutely not, no. You can't quantify that type of exposure, but clearly you can see what this event and others here in the Valley have done for the Valley and made it more and more a year-round destination, not just a seasonal uh, destination. What's the public-private partnership look like here? Uh, clearly, the county, city, state doesn't 
capitalize the construction of the facility, but they provide a lot of support, don't they? Absolutely. They've been amazing for us. Clearly, they are invested in working with us, undoubtedly, and it's been a great partnership to work with them. They work with us to build that vision. Of course, they have their vision of what needs to be here, and we're part of that. So very, very pleased with working with them. And, and this area understands what it means for, uh, for mega events, the, the hotels, the restaurants, and the like. This is the height of the season. Uh, is there a feeling that this event could happen any other time? You've got weather issues, obviously. you got the window here. Absolutely. But uh, the hotels and the infrastructure embrace this, notwithstanding the fact that they have a pretty good season anyway. Right, right. Now, you know, this is a perfect time for us, both from a tournament and tour calendar. Yeah. Uh, it fits very well. It fits very well within that and uh, partnering with uh, the Miami event that's coming up. So it's a great time to have it. We can always look to have other events here, perhaps in the fall when the weather is also nice. Let's talk about the Miami event as well. Renovations for facilities and keeping them up critical. Flushing Meadow, 500 million or so, new roof. Uh, all facilities all over the world, especially keeping majors, big dollars. Um, how important is it to make sure that facilities continue to improve while an event happens? I think it's very, very important. You know, we all have now access to large, high-def televisions right. in our living room. Makes it very convenient with replays to be able to go and, and make it our own experience. But for us, the stadium is one component of it. The grounds that we have and the gardens and such as that make it a, a different event than what you can get in your living room. So it's very important for us to continue to develop. Let's talk television because that's a good segue because uh, the term that owners of Major League franchises worry about the most, they've invented a term, decouching. And, Correct. And yeah, how do, you, how, do you, how do you keep people enjoying the television piece so you get the rights fees, yet come out to a unique experience on the ground. Right. It's a lot of creative people. You know, it's a combination of talented people behind those cameras that you want to have a great show, while at the same time we have a great crew here that does all of our activities for the fans, for the players, as well as production here on the large video walls, as well as uh, the different facilities that we have, so that people have something to do. Uh, are we comfortable of the growth of tennis generally worldwide? Absolutely. You know, I think it's continuing to grow. We have got some amazing players now, and the field that's coming up, the next gen for the ATP, as well as WTA, it's amazing players that are out there. You've seen some of the uh, next gen players coming up just through this tournament, and it, it's great to watch them. And I love the convergence of perhaps the people that we have, the Roger, Rafa, Serena, Venus, that whole crew, as well as all the next gen, and they're playing each other. It's great for the fans. Does the convergence, as you call it, we would also say the resurgence, Williams, Williams, Federer, Nadal, the first major, does that put less pressure on the kids to have to perform quickly? Do we feel like the superstar continues to dominate? And let's talk about American kids primarily. Right, right, right. No, I think they're all competitive, and they all want to win. And so I don't, I don't see it as a problem at all. I, I, it's exciting for the fans. I don't think that they're feeling the pressure that they have to win. I think they want to win. This tournament is really, really unique. 
in the sense that uh, I'm excited about a men's and women's final the same day, which is, which is huge. Given that context, this is a perfect tournament for a Larry Ellison of the world to help um, solve any issues relative to governance, men's and women's. Do we feel like it's getting more harmonious? If you want to wave a magic wand on the spot, what's the one thing you would change as far as the harmony between the men's and women's game? Well, I think that I've seen it in meetings already, which is great. I, I've been in meetings now where the WTA and the ATP are coming together, so it's not something that I need to wave a magic wand or anything like that. I think they're starting to come together already naturally to make it a great sport and uh, for the players and the fans. So I don't see that as something I necessarily need to wish for. I think they're already making it happen. Where is tennis broadly defined, professional tennis, let's say, five years from now? Five years from now, bigger and better. You see the investment that we're making here. You see what the U.S. Open is doing. Uh, very polished, I think, and um, you know, I think it's going to new heights here. Excellent. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrell. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hopte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Calaruso.